I don't know how familiar your group here is with, you know, our culture, but do they know about the Netflix expense policy? No. There is none. Do they know about their vacation policy? There is none. In fact, there are almost no policies. That The only policy is the same one. Use your best judgment. Love that. I absolutely love that. That's such an incredible way of running a company. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. The episode you're about to hear is a beautiful conversation with an entrepreneur that you perhaps haven't heard of, but you've definitely heard of his product. Meet Mark Randolph, the co-founder and the first CEO of Netflix. Yes, the Netflix, that product that you probably spend one to two hours a day hooked on while you're in quarantine. Mark is an incredible soul. And I'm currently reading his book, That Will Never Work. That's the title of the book, That Will Never Work. And it's just an incredible book on entrepreneurship. I've learned so much from just the first few chapters of this book. I'm fully hooked and I'm so excited to have Mark Randolph join us in this podcast. Now, what you're about to hear is a Zoom conversation between me, Mark Randolph, with close to 900 Mind Valley All Access members tuning in live and interacting with Mark and asking questions. This is a new format that we're doing. Those of you who are aware of Mind Valley know that Mind Valley publishes some of the world's best personal growth programs. And we have something called Mind Valley All Access, where you get open access to everything. But it's more than that. All Access is also a powerful community of just incredible individuals dedicated to personal growth. And I'm changing the way I do podcasts now. Our podcasts are now done in front of this live audience. So here we have 900 people communicating with me and Mark on Zoom, asking questions. And it's just so much fun. And what I found is that the podcast guests that I bring on, they are so much more enthusiastic and they teach so much better when they know they have a live audience. It's amazing the difference this makes. So we're going to be doing this more and more often. Now, if you want to find out more about Mind Valley All Access so you can get access to all our programs, plus join live recordings with our guests, go to mindvalley.com forward slash access. I repeat, mindvalley.com forward slash access. It is the best investment you can make in your growth. Truly the best investment. In fact, I want to read you a letter that came in today. This is from John Nguyen, who's an executive performance coach in Houston. John just sent this on our website. One of the best COVID-19 investments. In my quest to transform my life to be the best version of myself, I found Mind Valley All Access. What I'm hoping to achieve will be my best investment for 2020. I'm optimistic I'll grow deeper in knowing myself and being the best husband, father, and friend. So go check it out, mindvalley.com forward slash access. And now let's get started with the first CEO and co-founder of Netflix, Mark Randolph. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a really, really, really remarkable conversation with a guy I cannot wait to bring to you. Meet Mark Randolph, the founder of Netflix. And Mark is also the author of this book, That Will Never Work. Mark, so here's what's really going on. Mark, I know you signed up for a podcast interview with Mind Valley, right? Uh, yeah, and I'm hesitant. What's really happening here? 
Well, I thought we'll upgrade the experience a bit. So obviously, Mind Valley has a popular podcast, but see, every year we run a massive university project in Amsterdam or Tallinn or another beautiful European city. This year, of course, because of COVID, it shut down. So we are conducting classes with real students, with some of the world's most remarkable teachers and entrepreneurs every single day, all on Zoom. And rather than record you just one-on-one -on -one for a podcast, this is going to get turned into a podcast episode. I thought, why not have a live audience? So we have 700 people on Zoom watching us live today. Hi, gang. Because <laughs> how often, how often, guys, do you get to actually be live with the founder of what is probably one of your most favorite companies during quarantine, Netflix? So, Mark, firstly... I'm already on chapter one of the book, going on to chapter two. I just started reading it today, but I'm already in love with the book. And I love how honest and raw you are. And what I wanted to do here, folks, is have Mark share with you his story of becoming an entrepreneur, but not just an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur who built one of the most beloved companies in the world right now. Mark, my first question was, what was it that made you decide to go down that journey? For me, the decision to become an entrepreneur wasn't a decision at all. It was a compulsion, if you could call it that. I mean, for as long as I can remember, I've always been someone who was drawn to unsolved problems, to seeing things as an opportunity waiting to be taken advantage of. I mean, seriously, you know, I was one of those people who, even when I was probably seven or eight years old, you know, I had this kind of way to make money where I was selling seeds that you go plants from, like door to door. And for some crazy reason, I found even that fascinating. And I began experimenting. Well, can I do bundles? If you buy this, you get this. Just because I found that whole challenge of getting better at something exciting. And that has never stopped. Of course, as I've gotten older, some of the challenges that I felt equipped to take on were a little bit bigger. I began accumulating a whole gang of people who felt the same as me that I could draw on to help me. But you know, the things that draw you to be an entrepreneur, in fact, the things that make you a good entrepreneur really start very early or can be started at any time. It's an innate thing. Now, I like what you just said, can be started at any time. When I was reading your book, one of the things that struck me is that we are so used to hearing stories about, I call it the Zuckerberg effect, right? We're so used to thinking that if you want to build a massive company, you have to be in your 20s like Mark Zuckerberg. But you came up with the idea for Netflix when you were almost 40. Yeah, it's true. And I certainly work with the company that I did after Netflix called Looker, which was in some ways, at least you know, for the founders, a bigger success than Netflix. We started wow. when we were in our 50s. And so this is not necessarily a young man's game. And these skills can be done at any time. You know, the key is to start. And the reason that a lot of people don't start companies when they're older is not because they're not capable of it. In many ways, they're more capable. It's that it gets scarier. You know, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you have a mortgage and you have kids in school and taking those risks becomes a little bit more challenging. But there's, there's ways around that too. But you're right. Now, you know, I did it at 38. You can do it anytime. So what I found fascinating about your story is that there's the story in your book of how you were ride-sharing with Reed Hastings, the other co-founder of Netflix. And you guys used to get in a car together and carpool, carpool somewhere in the Bay Area. And every day you would pitch Reed a new idea. 
And I think one of the ideas was customized baseball bats. Another one was customized shampoo by delivery. What was going on there? First thing you have to know is that Netflix wasn't my first company. It wasn't my only company. It was actually my sixth company. So I'd been doing this for a while. And the previous company had been sold to the company that Reed started. And that's how Reed and I became friends. Mm. And then that company was sold someplace else. And then the really fortunate thing happened, which is that both Reed and I were fired. I mean, not in the bad way. We were fu- not okay. in the bad way. We were fired in that merger way where they say, we really don't have room for you guys, but there's golden handcuffs. You've got to stick around. And immediately for me, it was, it was like, great. I have time to do another company. And Reed was not quite in the same place. He had wanted to change the world. He was going to become an educational philanthropist. But, you know, once you're a once you're an entrepreneur, you can't walk away. And so he wanted to kind of keep his hands in. So Reed and I had this agreement. We'd come up with an idea together and that he would be my angel investor and that I would start and run the company. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, as you mentioned, we need the idea. And Reed and I lived in the same town and had gotten in the habit over the previous six to nine months of carpooling to work together every day. And we still had to go to this company while this deal was working out. So we had an hour each direction in the car to come up with an idea for a company. And at the time, this was 1997, this was not long after the internet was starting to become ubiquitous. And it was very, very early, in particular in the e-commerce world. People were just starting to realize you could actually sell things over the internet. And my background, my first 15 years of my career, I was a direct mail person, a catalogs, mail order, the science of selling things over the mail. And when I saw the internet, I went, oh my gosh, this, this is even more powerful than catalogs and direct mail. So this is a long way of saying my criteria for a company was has to sell something over the internet. And maybe it should have personalization involved. And that was it. This was not like Reed and I would spend our time in the car debating who the best directors in French cinema. We were normal guys with normal tastes. We were just looking for an opportunity to sell something on the internet. And you're right. One of them was personalized sporting goods, either surfboards or baseball bats. Another one, I really loved the shampoo idea, you know, because the idea was that you'd Here's the pitch. (laughs) I can't help it. You cut off a lock of your hair and you Mm -hmm. mail it to us. And then our team of ace hair scientists, whatever that is, formulates the custom blend just for you. And and then you subscribe to it. I can still see that you were in direct mail. Oh, yeah, there you go. And wait, there's more. No, you know, Reed, of course, is a bit more analytical about this. And he goes, that's not going to work. And then, of course, in his very cut and dry way, here's all the reasons it's a bad idea. So, all right, the next idea was even better. Personalized dog food. You tell us your breed, their age, their gender, their activity, what climate, et cetera. And we formulate the custom blend of dog food. And he didn't like that one either. So then another one, video rental by mail. And in some ways, that was the stupidest idea of all. I mean, there was a blockbuster on every corner. Who's going to want to do mail order video rental? 
And even more so, you know, video is big VHS cassettes. So that idea too got shelved. But you know, all of these were interesting, but the thing that finally broke it open didn't uh -huh. happen that moment. It happened a few months later when all of a sudden Reed mentioned he'd read about this new technology called the DVD. You know, a little, a small flat, I'm not even sure how many students actually right. don't know what a DVD, DVD is. Right. <laughs> Looks like a music CD, if anyone knows what that is. Looks like a beer coaster. How about that? People can relate the, to that. The average age of people listening is 40. So we get, oh, okay. we know okay. DVDs. Thank goodness. Okay. But anyway, so DVD came along and we were reading about this thing. And if it had just been that, nothing would have happened. But instead, it re-energized something that had happened a few months ago, which is all the research I had done into video rental by mail using VHS. And I describe it sometimes as that experience we've kind of all had where you're cleaning up your living room and you move the couch and you find an old piece from a jigsaw puzzle. And you go, what is this? And you go, oh, that's the missing piece from the puzzle I was working on two months ago. And that's what happened. We realized this unlocked that old video rental by mail idea. But that wasn't the key. The key was that instead of all of a sudden going, okay, let's go to the office and put together a pitch deck or let's go write a business plan. We immediately said, well, how can we validate this quickly and easily? And so right in the middle of the commute, we just turned the car around and drove back down to the Santa Cruz where we lived and mm -hmm. tried to buy a DVD. And of course there weren't any. So settled on buying a used music CD and then went a few doors down and bought a little gift envelope, a little pink envelope, like you'd mail a greeting card in. Mm -hmm. and put the CD in the envelope and mailed it to Reed's house in Santa Cruz. And then the very next morning when he came to pick me up, he just held up a little pink envelope with an unbroken CD in it that had gotten to his house in less than 24 hours. Wow. And, you know, in screenwriter speak, they have this thing called the incenting event. And if there was ever an event that started something, it was that moment. And that really was the time that both Reed and I looked at each other and said, ah, this just <laughs> might work. That's amazing. Is Netflix ever going to produce an origin story, Netflix original? <laughs> well, you know, because maybe I can so. See that scene is so descriptive. Yeah, I just need to figure out who's gonna uh, who's gonna play me. That's gonna be the big problem. Hmm. Who do you guys think should play Mark? Given <laughs> given how he looks right now, who do you think is the actor that Mark most looks like? Post no. it in the comments. You can't play me as a sixty-two. Picard. You can't play me as a sixty-two-year-old bald guy. You got to play me as a thirty-eight-year-old <laughs> virile man in the. So so I'm seeing Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt. Patrick yeah. Stewart. No, Patrick Stewart is who you are right now. Chris Helmsworth. Yeah. How about that? Uh, okay, I could. Chris Helmsworth is awesome. Yeah, Brad Pitt. I could. He's a little old now too. Michael but I could go for that. Keaton. Michael <laughs> Keaton. But Michael Keaton just played the founder of McDonald's, right? So yeah, he's yeah. he's done his share of like founder <laughs> stories. Well, I was also thinking Jonah Hill is kind of my outside choice. Anyway, so that's amazing. Now, what would be your message? to the people in the audience. So I know you're probably new to Mind Valley, but we are like the Netflix of education. I've literally been studying Netflix and looking at how can we create the same similar style of platform, combining Netflix with Facebook, but for the entire education space. Now, one of the things though, is that the average person who's watching here is around 40, 60% of them are entrepreneurs or leaders within companies. 
So this is a very intelligent, high-level crowd, and that's why they are tuning in. What would be your message to the aspiring entrepreneurs listening right now who are waiting at an opportunity or playing with an idea but just don't know how to move to the next step? Yeah, it's a pretty straightforward piece of advice, and it's pretty simple, which is you have to figure out how to quickly, easily, and cheaply get your idea out of your head and collide it with reality in some place. It is the single biggest flaw that I see every entrepreneur of every age commit mm -hmm. is they leave the idea in their head. And I understand why it is safe there and it's warm and it's nourished in your head. And in your head where it's not subject to outside forces, it can become so successful and you can imagine it getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But I hate to break it to you, you're wrong. There's something you're missing and it happens to all of us. And it's that fear that keeps us from starting. And if I have to point to the one thing that I've gotten really good at over the years is getting over that fear of taking an idea, which I know is flawed and putting it out because then I get told why it's flawed. And more importantly, they point out exactly what the flaws are mm. so I can reformulate it and try it again. And the trick is not having the idea. The trick is how quickly and how cheaply and how easily and how cleverly you can figure out a way to take an idea and test it. You can rapidly prototype it and test it. Correct. And you don't even need to do it for real. People get hung up on this whole minimal viable product thing is ridiculous. Who said it has to be viable? It just needs to be something that stimulates what the problem is you're really trying to solve. Let me give you a specific detail mm -hmm. of what I mean by this. Okay, so I had a, a young woman. I do a lot of work with university-age people, and then she had this idea. She goes, wouldn't it be great if we could do kind of peer-to-peer -peer clothing rental, which is where I, you know, I have in my closet all this clothing I don't wear. I know my right. friends do. We'd love to be able to have a business. She's saying, where can I find a technical co-founder? How do I get the money to build the app? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, no, 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 no. Let's figure out a way to figure out whether what you're thinking about is any reality to it. And I go, do you have a piece of paper? She goes, yeah, of course. I'll go, do you have a marker? She goes, yeah. I go, make a sign that just says, need to borrow clothes? Knock. And put it on the outside of your dorm room door. And we're going to find out in a few hours whether your idea is viable or not. Because you're going to see, first of all, does anyone knock? And if nobody knocks, well, you've learned something right there. Now, if they do knock, you're going to learn about, is there a size issue? Is there a taste issue? And if no one borrows from you, well, you've learned something right there. Let's say they borrow from you. Now, how do you feel about when it comes back stained or comes back torn? You're going to learn all of that for the price of a piece of tape and one piece of paper. Now, is that scalable? No. Is it repeatable? No. Is it a quick, cheap, easy way to hack whether your core concept has any validity to it? Absolutely. And I've learned you can use that method for any idea. I mean, maybe if your idea is to build a next generation CAT scan device, it doesn't work. Listen, that's not what your ideas are. It's a way to get started. Start, 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 start. If you're waiting to hire someone, you're wasting time. If you're waiting to complete some education, you're wasting your time. If you're waiting to raise money, you're wasting your time. Start. Wow. Give us an example from one of your other companies. How did you prototype and test that idea? 
I'll give you a Netflix example. It was a learning experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was telling you how this initial idea was video rental by mail. And you may not know that for the first 10 years, Netflix did not have streaming. Netflix mailed people DVDs in the mail. And at the beginning, when we first launched, there was due dates and there was late fees. And all those people who said that will never work, well, they were right. It was a terrible idea. It didn't work. Nobody- What happened? No one rented from us. And if we could get them to rent from us, they would not rent a second time. It took us a year and a half of experimenting to finally stumble on the business model that was repeatable and scalable. But at first, everything was broken. And it wasn't like I had, didn't have enough ideas of things to try. The problem was I was too much of a perfectionist. So each of these tests that we'd come up with would be these works of art. You know, I'd commission custom photography and we'd have these sessions where we argued over every word of copy and we'd have to stress test the site. It would take us three weeks. And then we launch the test and it fails. And we go, oh, that was a waste of time and go faster. And we do it in two weeks and it fails. Go faster. We do a test every week and it fails. And then pretty soon we're just throwing crap at the wall. We're doing tests in an hour and there's misspellings and typos and the wrong imagery and we're crashing the site and we've got dead links because we're not worried about these things we're testing. Are they really going to work if someone accepts them? We're trying to see if there's glimmers of appealing to somebody. But what happens is if you have a bad idea, no matter how much polish goes into the test, it doesn't make it a good idea. But if it's a good idea, then even this terribly implemented thing immediately shines and then you know what to fix. And so the insight for Netflix, which infected the whole culture, was that it was not about having good ideas. It was about this system and a process and a culture for testing lots of bad ones. Wow, and so, that's a really, really beautiful insight. What was that business model shift? What was that strategic shift that made it take off? It was something that I should have known. It was three different things. I said, we were doing a la carte rental, where basically you rented something on a DVD and you paid due dates and late fees. And, and then we said, I was one day in our warehouse. And by that point, you probably had several hundred thousand DVDs in this huge warehouse. And I remember what Reed and I were talking about it. And I was saying, it's kind of a shame that we have all these DVDs sitting on these shelves doing nothing. Wouldn't it be kind of interesting if we could figure out a way to store them at the customer's houses? Let them keep them. And when they're done, they mail it back. We'll just replace them with another one. And that was kind of interesting. And then we had another idea, which is, but then if they do that, then they've got to come to the website and pick the next DVD they want. Let's have them make a list. And then as soon as one comes in, we can instantly mail them the next one on their list. And then here's the one that I should have picked up. I had been in the magazine business. I had done subscriptions. Why charge them each time they swap a disc? Let's just charge them a flat monthly fee and they could exchange as often as they want. When we tried all three of those things rolled together, it instantly worked. I mean, boom, it was like people say, Mark, how do you know what product market fit looks like? Well, I go, you can't define it. It's like pornography. You can't define it, but you know it when you see it. And boom, off this thing went. And that was the moment that really, in some ways, Netflix stopped being a startup and started being a a real company. 
And then from then on, it was get everything else out of the way, abandon a la carte, abandon everything, which isn't focusing on this one core concept. And that is the concept that instantly scaled us up. They were subscribers. There was huge virality. We actually could provide this service. We charge more than it cost us to do it, which was a novelty in that day, if you may remember what it was like back in the year 2000. So it was kind of the moment that transformed the company and it set the stage for transition to streaming. It's allowed us to establish this one-on-one connection with the customers. It gave them trust that we could generate and find content that they'd like and deliver it to them. Amazing. Amazing. Now, I'm curious to know something else. What was it that sparked that idea for Netflix to go into original programming? How did that evolution happen? It's funny. You know, I mentioned the book is called That Will Never Work. And there was two reasons that was the case. And everyone told me that'll never work. My investors, my employees, even my wife, that'll never work. But they had two reasons. And one was the one I mentioned before, which is that there's a blockbuster in every corner, 9,000 blockbuster stores. Why would somebody want to do rental by mail? The other reason though, was that DVD is a digital medium. And we knew it was just a matter of time before people could either download or stream. And so everyone was saying, well, it's just imminent before that happens and then who needs DVDs? And we knew that they were right and that inevitably it would happen, but we also knew it was gonna take a while. And we thought a long while. And so we realized that if we could not build a company that was built on the delivery mechanism, we could not be Netflix, the fastest shipper of plastic. But neither could we be Netflix, the streaming company, because back then in 1998, you can't stream. There's no bandwidth, no DRM, none of these things existed. So we had to come up with a positioning which was avoided that altogether. And the positioning was Netflix, which is a great place to find stories you love. And that works. It works whether you're getting it on plastic. It works whether you're getting it delivered over the web. It works when we can figure out how to beam it telepathically into people's fillings or whatever it is the future brings. But we then had to make that real. And at the beginning, making it real meant having every single copy available. And then making it real meant coming up with an algorithm to help predict what you might like. But then it became make our own content. And driven, of course, by what was happening in the industry, which is that at first you could get rights exclusively to a movie for streaming. And then the studio said, this is crazy. Why am I doing this? I'm going to make it every single streaming service simultaneously gets that movie. And all of a sudden you've got to figure out a way to differentiate yourself. And HBO had written that playbook and we just followed in their path and said, this works in both dimensions. Let's just differentiate ourselves and It supports our core brand promise, which is we're going to bring you great things to watch. And I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Like during quarantine, Netflix was how I spent so much time bonding with my kids. I'd work 10 hour days and then I'd go and I'd sit in front of Netflix with my children and, you know, watch our favorite shows. For those of you who are listening to this, share your favorite Netflix series, your favorite (laughs) Netflix original series. I'm curious right now we're on Warrior Nun. Okay, Mark, I have a couple of questions from the audience. So, Mark, I want to read out the first question. It is from 
MW and MWS. Mark, what was your favorite company to start and how did that change your view of business? Wow. <laughs> That's like asking me which of my children is my favorite. You love them all for different reasons. I'll pick one and I won't pick Netflix. I mean, Netflix is certainly the most visible success, but I'll say that the most recent one, which was Looker, Looker Data it's called, was probably the favorite because we designed that, myself and the two co-founders designed it from the very beginning to fit with how we wanted to work. We were at a stage in our life and we were old enough to have enough influence with how we wanted to fund it and how we wanted it to be the terms for the employees and what kind of culture we developed. And more importantly, we knew how to get those things. I mean, a lot of people say, I want a certain culture, but don't have the skills necessarily to make that become true. And this was the right time in my life where I kind of knew what I wanted and felt I had the ability to do it. But as to what I learned is an equally important lesson. So Looker was eventually founded to be almost a lifestyle business. It was designed to be almost entirely online so that we could run it from our homes, from our hometown, sell it for you know $149 a month, and it didn't want to be that product. Looker had different ideas for itself than what we wanted for it. And it ended up not wanting to be a $149 a month product. It wanted to be a $149,000 a year product or a $1.49 million a year product. And that is not what you run all on the web, all from your home. It pulled us into totally different directions, which ended up being fun in and of itself. But the big lesson there is, you can do everything you want, but your children do grow up to be different than perhaps the things you'd planned for them. And Looker, you ended up selling to Google. Yeah, to Google for $2.6 billion. So it certainly was a great outcome. I don't do these things for the money, but it's more importantly a really chance to demonstrate that a lot of the things we did that people said you can't do, actually. Now, what was the idea behind Looker? the original idea that sparked the company. <laughs> the co-founder, Lloyd Tab, who is the CTO, the real visionary behind it, was solving problems for himself. He was curious about how to understand the data better in the companies that he had been working in before. And he couldn't find a product which would allow him to really understand what was going on. And so, of course, he did the thing that a lot of clever engineers do is go, well, I'm just going to write something myself. And he wrote something totally different. He wrote a language for doing analytics and that hadn't existed yet. And he did the same thing that I would have recommended. He just took this raw product and began giving it to his friends and saying, try this out and let me know what you think. He began putting it out in the real world early and getting feedback. And that's when he came to me and said, people really like this. I think this is not just a feature or a product. This is a company. Let's do something. And that's where it went. And it was a way just basically to help people understand their company's data a little bit more easily and a little bit more accurately. That's amazing. So Looker is now part of Google Cloud, for those of you who are wondering. It's L-O-O-K-E-R.com. So Anja Furke, I hope I pronounced that name right, Anja, asks, what's the biggest difference in starting the first company and starting your most recent company? As an entrepreneur, what has shifted? What has evolved? 
So the world is completely different now. I mean, the first company was the first web company, let's call it that way, that generation, internet generation company. You know, that was 20 plus years ago. And the world was a pretty different place. The net was in its infancy in a lot of ways. So back then, if you wanted to do a internet company, which we did, and you wanted to have a website, you had to build it yourself. I mean, there was no Squarespace. There was no instantly dialing up and getting an e-commerce store. You had to write the code. You could not host it in the cloud. You had to have a rack of servers that you had to do yourself. If you wanted redundancy, you had to build that yourself. If you wanted security, you had to build it yourself. If you wanted a payment gateway, you had to write the code to connect yourself to the credit card companies and the banks. Everything was manual. So as a result, you know, it took Netflix six months from when we started until we actually launched this rudimentary e-commerce website. It's the kind of stuff that you could do now in a couple of hours. So the technical infrastructure was much more primitive. And the second thing, of course, was the economic infrastructure was much more primitive. There was not this vibrant angel community. There was not this nicely segmented venture community, which had companies focused on early stage investment. Back then, you were going around pulling in relationships, trying to convince late stage companies to do early stage investments, and all that's different now. Now, if you want to try something, you can, in a few hours, again, set up an instance of a website with e-commerce. It has testing. It has payment. It has security. It has redundancy, which the effective thing that's done is not just shorten the time to start a company, but it's dramatically shortened the time distance between idea and validation. I mean, for us, the time distance between idea and validation was six months and $2 million, which means that to take that chance, we had to be 38 years old. And both of us, me and Reed, had to have this track record of success enough to get people to bet that much money on us. Now, since you could do that in a few hours for $25, it eliminates that piece of it. Anyone can try these things. You can be seven years old. You could live in Kamchatka, wherever Kamchatka is. It's completely democratized the ability to start. That is the most exciting thing that's happened in the last 20 years. Ed Magema asks, how did you come up with the name Netflix? <laughs> what you, most people learn pretty quickly is naming a company is brutal, is that you have this great name and you go on and look at it and go, oh, taken. Oh, I can get the domain name I want. Oh, but it's trademarked. Oh, now I want the Twitter. I want the, it turns out it's, oh, it's so hard to name a company these days. And it was just almost as hard 20 years ago. And, you know, even worse, you come up with a name and you're all excited. You can get the domain name, you can get the Twitter, you can get all these things. And all of a sudden you realize it means go screw yourself in, uh, you know, Turkish or something. So, (laughs) so that's out the window. But anyway, I got this great advice from a mentor of mine early on. And he said, when you're starting your company, by the way, background here, when you're starting a company, you don't have the name at first, but you still have to pay people and get a lease and you need a name. So you have a thing called a beta name. Well, here's your trivia. So the beta name for Netflix was Kibble, kibble kibble.com. That is what we used when we started the company to hit the lease. And that's what we called. And in fact, I still own that domain name. I think market kibble still comes to me. But the advice I got was pick a beta name so bad that when you come time to really pick the name of your company, 
you're not tempted to use it because the real name is so hard. <laughs> and of course, comes time to name the company and we got a whiteboard and made two columns. And the left column were names that felt like reflected the internet, right. you know, web or net or whatever. And on the other side were names that kind of reflected maybe what we were doing, video or movies or TV. And we took this huge combination and made all the combinations of them. And then I began doing the work, trying to find one where I could get the domain name and get all the associated trademarks, et cetera. And I couldn't find anything that I liked. And Netflix was one of the names on the list, but people did not like it. And what they didn't like about it was that flicks part. Some of us are old enough to remember that back at the dawn, of the video age here, porno was sometimes called a skin flick. And so people are going, flick, skin, oh, and that X. This sounds like we're, you know, talking about pornography. And so people didn't like it, but we got to this point where we couldn't find anything else we liked. And so we had a vote. And, you know, Netflix sounded a little porny, right. but it was the, uh, the best we could do. And so <laughs> I love that. I love that line. Netflix sounded a little porny, but it's the best that we could do. So <laughs> up it goes. So one of the first books I ever read about Netflix was Patty McCord's Powerful, right? You guys can see that on the screen behind me. By the way, this is an amazing book. I take it you probably work closely with Patty? Absolutely. One of my best friends. That's amazing. So Patty really influenced the Mind Valley culture. Her book, Powerful, was something I make all my managers read. And I wanted to ask you, was there some magic ingredient about the Netflix culture that you read and Patty put within the company that made it so successful? And is it something that you can share with us as entrepreneurs? Absolutely. And it's probably going to surprise you in that you know, Netflix is famous for its culture. It's famous in particular for its culture deck. But the key thing is that culture is not what you say. Culture is what you do. And too many people get that confused. They get all worked up about these aspirational things. What do we want to become? But that's not what culture is. Culture is how you behave. And more importantly, culture almost always springs from the beginning, from how the founders behave, from how the founders treat each other and their employees and themselves and their customers. And people model that. And listen, any of us who have children know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you can talk all you want about certain principles, but your children are watching and the things you do resonate much more loudly than the things you say. And businesses are no different. What's unique about Netflix is not that it started with this great culture. That what's unique is that they managed to hold on to it. And if you think about this core tenet of the Netflix culture, which is sometimes called freedom and responsibility, it's not a crazy thing. And it comes from that fact that when a company starts, there's only a handful of people trying to do the work of 10 handfuls. And when it's like that, you just do not have time for a command and control structure. Mm. All you can do is say, oh my gosh, okay, you see that mountain over there? Vishen, I'll meet you there in two weeks and you're gonna have to figure out the most appropriate way for you to get there. But when you get there in two weeks, I expect you to have the following things done. 
And then off you go. Love and you're going to bump into things that were unanticipated, unexpected. You're going to change course. You're going to be bloodied and bleeding and bruised. But you're going to show up on top of that mountain in two weeks with the things done needed to get done. I gave you the freedom to figure out the best way to get there by yourself. But the responsibility to all the rest of us to have your part finished. Now, that's really common in a seven-person startup. But as companies get bigger, something interesting happens. One day, they have 70 employees or 700, and someone shows up late. And the CEO well-meaningly goes, oh, that's not good. Okay, we can't have that happen again. Here's what's going to happen. I need all of you to report in regularly so I know if you're going to be late. So status reports, please. And everyone goes, oh, status reports. Oh, okay. And then a month or two later, someone shows up on time, but they overspent. And the CEO goes, ooh, that's not good. Okay, how about if we all pre-approve all expenses over X? And pretty soon, you've got this thing which used to be fast-moving and fluid and able to handle unexpected things, and now you've bogged it down. But a worse thing has happened which is all these people who love the fact that they were given the freedom to do it their way with the responsibility of getting it done, hate that. And they leave. Or you can't attract new people. And you end up with a company full of people who are great with all kinds of constraints and guardrails. And what Netflix did, which was special and different, is designed a company not to protect itself from people with bad judgment, but to support and attract people with great judgment. And that is easy for me to say, incredibly hard to do. Yeah. I don't know how familiar your group here is with you know, our culture, but like, do they know about the Netflix expense policy? You know, no. There, there is none. Do they know about their vacation policy? There is none. In fact, there are almost no policies. That the only policy is the same one. Use your best judgment. Love that. I absolutely love that. That's such an incredible way of running a company. Now, think why, uh, that's the name of the person who's asking this question, says, how did you manage your company, employees, and maintain an ongoing operation and revenue while going through so many pivots? <laughs> how do I say this? So it's a, it's a mentality. There's two things. I, I, I have 20, but I'll name two. The first is that you find people who are by their nature drawn to that style of working, which is when they come to something that's unexpected or unanticipated, they don't freeze, they lean in. And as I mentioned, I was 38 when I started Netflix and I had a bunch of other startups I'd done and I'd found people who felt the same way I did, who I knew loved that style of, if it's different today than it was yesterday, love it. I'll learn something new as opposed to being paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And ensuring that your company culture stays like that is the key to remaining nimble, which these days is more important than ever. Companies get stale. They get successful. 
they go, we've had the same business quarter after quarter, and they bring all these people in who are fantastic at finding efficiencies and shortening supply chains and improving margins. And those people are fantastically brilliant and talented until the whole thing shifts. And then they're like deer in the headlights. So that was one way I managed this. The second way was a doubling down mentality. I'll give you an example. So early on, I mentioned way back at the beginning, we not only rented DVDs, but we sold them too. And at the time, it was a afterthought because we're, we're making all this effort finding DVD player owners. Let's sell to them too. And unfortunately, it was extremely successful. So successful that only a few months in, 90 somewhat percentage of our revenue came from selling DVDs. And it was a disaster because we knew it was just a matter of time before other people sold DVDs and it would be a commodities business and our margins would go to zero and we're done. And it also distracted us from getting rental right. It was confusing. It was really hard to get our reporting correct. And we knew we had to focus on one thing and get one thing right. And the trick was which one. And if we had focused on selling, well, that would have been great because that was paying 90% of our salaries, but distracting us from focusing on what we knew was the ultimate long-term goal of the business. But it was very, very scary to say we're going to focus on rental when that was not working and showed no signs of working. But that's the nature of being an entrepreneur is you're prepared and more interested, frankly, in taking the long shot at what could be a big success rather than taking the safe route toward mediocrity or more likely failure. And so we did one day said, all right, we're all in. And we walked away entirely from selling DVDs and focused everything on rental. And I got to say that when you in a single day walk away from 90% of your revenue, that's a pretty effective way to focus your mind on the problem ahead of you. Oh, I love that. There's so much, so much depth in that answer. And it's really got me thinking about certain sacrifices that I may have to make in my business as well. <laughs> it's really, really hard. But fundamentally, the hardest decisions you're going to ever have to make is what you're not going to do, not right. what you're going to do. We used to call it, Netflix, we called it scraping the barnacles off the hull. Because over time, all these little ideas just slowly but surely accrete, and they're all tiny, and so you go, well, leave them there. Or they have some customer who likes it, and you don't realize that over time, all those things are slowing you down because you have reverse compatibility problems, or you have code issues, and you've got to start every meeting where you're going to think about what you want to do with a discussion about what are we going to stop doing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a good right. discipline. The next question is from Anonymous, Anonymous Attendee. That's a very original name. And this person is asking, what if Netflix starts to give education with entertainment? Well, I would hope. I mean, last night we watched, was it Athlete A? Player A? Athlete A, which is a documentary about the U.S. gymnastics program and the abuses that took place there. And to think that's not educational is a mistake. But I know what you mean. You mean more classical masterclass style or <laughs> your style of education. Right. I don't envision it. Again, I don't work at the company and I haven't worked there in quite a while. So I don't have any direct insight into what they're thinking. And they could surprise me by some big announcement tonight at the earnings. But 
I would be very, very surprised. And the reason is focus. Focus has been in our DNA since the very beginning. Focus has been our culture from the very beginning. Focus has sprung from how I behaved and Reed behaved and the company behaved. And here's another story. And this is the Canada principle, I call it. It's about focus. And it's about why not education. And early on, everyone said, you should be in Canada. We were only in the United States. And we go, why? And they go, well, Canada, 10% bump, easy. You know, they're right next door, you can mail. And we go, huh. But you begin looking into it and you go, well, yes, but it's not the same language. They do speak French in Canada. In fact, it's governmentally mandated that you have to keep things in French for certain provinces. And the currency, yeah, it's called the dollar, but it's a different currency and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you realize that pursuing that 10% if you used that effort and focused it on your core business, you'd get way more than a 10% return. And it meant saying one time after another, good idea, yes, but the better idea, the best idea, the right idea, no. And held off for a long, long, long time. Education is probably in that category. Good idea, would it work? Probably. But is that the right place to put priorities as opposed to focusing those same smart people on making your core business better on making the experience better for 183 million other people? Almost never. That's amazing, Mark. Someday I'd love to show you what Valley is doing with education. I'd love to see it. And, you know, the longer the Netflix stays away, probably the better. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so as we come to the end of this conversation, Tell us a little bit about what are you most passionate about right now? This question is from Melanie, who's watching. What's your biggest passion? You know, I'll surprise you, perhaps. Robotics. No, that's the surprise. It's, like, <laughs> it's, gonna be, it's nothing like I think you'd expect. From the very beginning, my big focus has been on balance. And I'm not BSing you here. Since I was in my 20s, I've learned and dawned on me that I was not a whole person if I was working all the time, especially uh, once I got married. And especially once I had kids, I go, you can't have business success be the metric for success in your life. And from the very beginning, it's been about, back then it was making this vow to myself that I was not going to be an entrepreneur on their sixth company and on their sixth life. And I would do all these things to make sure that happened. I had this policy at Netflix where every Tuesday at five o'clock sharp, I'm out the door for a date night with my wife. And for those of you who are now running businesses, you know that's hard. There's a crisis and nope, we're gonna wrap it up by five. You know, you've gotta talk to you, Mark. And I go, great, on the way to the car. But after a while, people learn you're serious and they stop asking. And even more important, again, culture is what you do, not what you say. They begin realizing this whole thing that Mark keeps talking about, how important balance is, is real. And the other part of balance for me is I recognize this, besides family, is this personal, I call it feeding the rat. It's getting out and doing these. For me, it's mountaineering and climbing and mountain biking and backcountry skiing and these things that I know make me whole. So what am I interested in? It's mastering balance. It's I, I love that. Judge myself all the time. End of every week, how did I do? Every month, how do I do? Every year, how did I do? I actively plan, what can I do to make sure I get this right? And, you know, people say, 
are really curious. Someone asked at the beginning about the company's favorite company to start, wherever it was, but like what I'm most proud of, and it is not that I'm most proud of starting Netflix. It's not proud of the exit to Google. The pride from my career as an entrepreneur is that I managed to do all those things, staying married to the same woman, having three kids who know me and as best as I can tell, like me. That is an accomplishment that I've worked really hard at and that I'm proud that I accomplished. I love that, Mark. That's such a beautiful statement. Tell us about the 1% project. You know, as it might flow from the fact that I'm an outdoors person, I've recognized that these places that I've been taking for granted my whole life are under threat. And kind of as my passion, it's doing what I can to protect natural spaces. And one of the causes that I support very heavily, and I'm on the board, is called 1% for the Planet, which basically says that all companies have an obligation to pay an earth tax, more or less, to basically represent they use resources and they have to do what they can to support this. And it's a pledge that they'll spend 1% of their revenue, not their profit, on environmental nonprofit work. It was started by Yvonne Chouinard, founder of Patagonia, and it's now expanded to more than a thousand other companies in the country and all over the world, which are all saying we do want to give back and support it. I really wow. applaud the fact that you can actually have a business and recognize that you can make space to help the natural world as well. That's amazing, Mark. Mark, thank you so much for the time you spent with us. How can we best support you and your book and your message right now? My entire thing right now is about getting people started, getting them to overcome these obstacles, getting them to take these ideas that they have in their head and get it out in the real world. That is my mission. That is my passion. It's the reason I wrote the book. But if you find that the book is a little too overwhelming to read and you want it in a little bit shorter doses, you can do find me. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. And if you want it in between, there's plenty of places to follow that. But that's the best way I think you can support it is by making me proud of you, by taking the idea, get out there and do something. I love that, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us here on Mind Valley. Thank you for your time and, and good luck, everybody. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.